Hello, Internet. Greetings from Soggy, Ohio. Mike Erie here from the epicenter of, uh, of Vox, uh, the Vox movement, uh, suburban Columbus, Ohio. Andy chiming in from uh, some sort of beach community. I don't even remember what that's like. Um, it's in the 60s. He's got a, a beanie on and a sweatshirt. Um, I don't even remember what that's like. It's so long ago, Andy. So today, I mean, oh my goodness, this is the week where like hitting the fan has become kind of, I open up Twitter every morning and I'm, I'm an advantage now on East coast time. Like it's happening in real time. Oh yeah. Um, and so, you know, yesterday, uh, we get up and it's like, boom, Matt Lauer, boom, president Trump is retweeting fascist, you know, racist <laughs> groups, uh, boom, you know, I, I mean, here's the next actor accused. And I mean, it's just absolutely insane. There's so much to talk about, but, but there's this sense, I don't know if it's true for you, Andy, but, but there's just the sense of like, I need to detox. Like there's just so much awful <laughs> that's going on right now, kind of in the, in the air and the water, North Korea can now hit us. Uh, they have a missile long enough to to hit Sweet Ohio, right? Um, so you know, know and that's concerned where, that they could have hit California, you know, six months ago when they're saying right, right. <laughs> but but Ohio would make more logical sense just because it's kind of the center of everything, <laughs> and and Ohio State, you know, I mean, it just makes sense that would be one of the first sort of communities gone after. Yeah. So I feel like you know. I feel like we, we've bought lots of we, we've purchased boughten. That, that's a great word. We've purchased lots of uh, plastic and gas masks, so we're we're ready. Um, <laughs> Wait, have you really? Not really. No. Oh, okay. No, not not even remotely. Not even remotely. I think uh, on the list of strategic sites, Columbus is probably 172nd. I would imagine. <laughs> I think I think I would actually be in danger if LA, if LA was considered like you know a major a major target. I think that that's the right. size of that bomb would actually be should put me in some kind of concern but absolutely or they or they go after uh what's the marine base yeah camp pendleton yeah sure yeah oh yeah that's, all I'm, camp pendleton, that's I'm, all I'm saying I'm a goner i'm a goner if that's what happens yes if it if i don't talk to you andy we had a good run oh gosh so i really hope this you. i really hope this is not one of those stories where prophetically on the radio i talk about how i'm going to go and th it actually happens <laughs> please right. lord no <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Okay, but I feel, but I feel so reassured because we're in such capable, stable hands. <laughs> that's hey, hey, you know, that's fine. Oh, <laughs> uh, so, so I, I go into all that to kind of set up the interview we have today. Um, so I have, uh, I have uh, a, an acquaintance who we share a, a book agent, but the, you know, the agents are friends of deep friends of mine. And I, I got to meet her when she was here. She's a New York times bestselling author. Her name's Katie Davis majors. And uh, I met her when she was promoting her first book before she kind of hit it big. So I knew her when, ooh. um, Ooh, and she is just got an amazing story. And her latest book is called daring to hope. So uh, we've been excited to get her on the program. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we call this a program, which Finally. is a weird word to use. <laughs> um, we'll call it a show. How about that? Sure. And uh, we're, we're really excited to have her, have her with us. So she, we're going to talk to her live, well, live for us, recorded for you, but live <laughs> from her bathroom in Uganda. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love that. And uh, and uh, she wrote a book called Kisses from Katie that released, um, I don't know, several years ago. And, and both of these are like runaway bestsellers. But she's an amazing, amazing young lady. I mean, holy cow. So we're excited to have an interview with her. We need a dose of like good news. Oh, yeah. Um Holy cow, we need some good news. So so we hope Katie's kind of a, a refreshing change from all of the ugliness that's going on. So hope yeah. you enjoy the interview. Hey, everybody. Mike and Andy here. And we are so very excited uh, to have a, I consider her a close friend. She probably doesn't know who I am. Um, but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> she is a New York Times bestselling author and um kind of a big deal um she uh she has an incredible story to tell her name is katie davis majors and she is joining us from uganda katie you're it's evening right where, where you are so good evening it is evening it is nine o'clock and you are squirreled away in your home office otherwise known as the the bathroom here Correct. i am <laughs> i love it and and as all parents know that is sometimes the only place that you can get some peace and quiet <laughs> so yeah until you see somebody's like little fingers creeping under oh, the door oh. oh my goodness yes oh oh yes oh yes or or uh well okay i won't get into those stories but katie we're thrilled to have you with us and uh, we're so excited for your time. So thank you for coming on our show. Uh, Katie's written two books. And um, the first book was, uh, was called Kisses from Katie and uh, was, was published, what, 2011, was it, Katie? Yeah, that's right. And um, was really formed out of a series of blog posts you had done, true? Mm, yes. Thanks for talking so much. This is great. Um I uh, <laughs> and so I got a hold of it, read the book. I mean, it was it was incredible, but it was kind of the story of your moving and kind of God's calling uh, for you to move from Tennessee to Uganda as a 19 year old, and instead of having the sort of normal, you know, late high school, early college sort of experience in America, uh, you chose to become the adopted mother of a bunch of kids. Can you get, tell us just a bit of that, a bit of that story, if you would? Yeah, absolutely. So I had come to Uganda for three weeks during the senior year of my, like during my senior year in high school, um, over Christmas break with my mom and we had worked at an orphanage here. And while I was here, I met a pastor at a different, more rural orphanage. And he had asked me to come back and spend a year volunteering with him, helping specifically to teach in his kindergarten program that he was trying to start up for the kids at the orphanage. So I went back to the States and finished up high school and thought about it a lot and decided that I wanted to defer college for a year to come to Uganda and teach wow. at this orphanage. And as I was here during that year, I mean, first of all, I was just captivated by the culture and the people. Ugandan people are unbelievably gracious and so hospitable and so welcoming and so kind. And I, I was really captivated by them. I was also pretty shocked by the state of the orphanage where I was working and even more shocked to learn that most of the children in the orphanage had parents or had at least one parent. And statistically speaking, about 80% of children in orphanages in East Africa have at least one living parent. 
And I, oh, I think wow. that was just so, it was so shocking to me. I think in the Western mindset, we assume if you live in an orphanage, you're an orphan, that means you don't have parents. But here, um, in East Africa specifically, but I think in a lot of the third world, the children are orphans, not because they've lost their parents, but because of poverty. And so where I was Got living it. specifically, parents were sending their children to the orphanage because the kids at the orphanage get to eat three times a day and they oh, get it. to go to school and they get to have access to medical care. And so actually, because they're being loving, they, do we need to back up? Is this live or? Oh, we are no. so live right now, Katie. No, um, no, that was my fault. I, yeah, no problem. <laughs> I'm a mess. No, no, we 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 hardly edit, so um, we're we're good. Keep we're not going. live, but yeah, keep on going. You're doing great. And and one question I had, uh, I'm glad for the break. One question I had is, your parents had to really wrestle with this too, right? Because the three weeks, uh, uh, something must have very significantly happened during those three weeks to even open you up to the possibility of spending a year. And deferring yeah, college, right? I think, um, I mean, I think I was just amazed and intrigued by kind of the level of poverty I saw. You know, I grew up in a very affluent area, in a very affluent home. Um, my parents were always super conscious of teaching us, even as young children, that we were fortunate and that not everybody was. And we were always involved in different things at our church, you know, serving the homeless or making mm -hmm. Christmas. Christmas baskets for people who might not have Christmas presents. And, and they did a really great job of um, instilling a desire for, for service in me. And um, yeah. they did a great job teaching me that like, yeah, you're living a pretty fortunate life, but this is not how the majority of people live. But then Uganda was like this whole other level of poverty that I had never seen and never experienced. And, and my heart has always been, to serve people, I think. And so uh, to be invited back just seemed like you know, this great invitation and this great opportunity. And um, so I wanted to, I mean, I wanted to come back. I was, I was, I loved these people and, and I felt yeah. like, I felt like it was needed specifically at the orphanage that I moved back to for the year. They did not have much help. They didn't have Western funding. Um, and so I was excited to be there, but just also really shocked by a lot of the things I was learning about the orphanage system here. And um, so with a couple of local friends that I had made, I started asking about six months into my time here, I started asking people in the village and people who were bringing their kids to drop them off at the orphanage, I started asking them like, Hey, if you, if you had another option, like if somebody would come alongside you and pay for your kid's school or help you find a job or provide for you in this way, would you want to keep your children? And unanimously, mm -hmm. everybody said yes. And so slowly, but surely that's how Amazima was born. I started paying for two little girls to go to school so that they could stay with their grandmother instead of coming to live at the orphanage. And mm. I shared this with my parents and some friends in the <laughs> States. And I had a blog that had, you know, like 10 followers at the time and um, <laughs> different, different people kind of started reading about this and said like, Oh man, I could give $30 a month or a couple hundred dollars a year to help with something like that. And so before I knew it, we had 40 children that we were sending to school. And mm -hmm. um, it was it was just me and two of my good Ugandan friends. And uh, we were running it at first out of my room. 
you were you were running it you were running it in what way you were just doing the administration of the of the money or you were teaching the kids or we were no we were collecting funds and then using those funds to send the children to nearby schools Got so it. that their parents wouldn't feel like they needed to actually live at the orphanage in order to go to school school is oh, expensive here um, oh. I guess that's that's one thing that the story doesn't really make sense without. But school here is one of a family's biggest expenses. It's not free, mm. wow. um, mm. and many families here have you know multiple children. And so the larger the family, the harder it is to send even one or two children to school. And um, we would we would meet once a week with all the kids who were sponsoring and do Bible study. And then I kind of felt like, oh, I need to get a place where I can do this instead of doing it out of the back of. Pastor Isaac's house because <laughs> I had like this little <laughs> teeny tiny closet room that was kind of my space at the orphanage. And so I actually moved into a house that was just on the street. Um, and this is all during the year, just the one yeah, year you're there. This is, oh this my is all during the year. So I, deci- I decided that I was going to move into a little house kind of down the road and make that kind of the central hub for Mazima, which was growing pretty quickly. I mean, we went pretty quickly from 40 kids to 100 within mm. that first year, wow. uh, just because people, I mean, people kept sending the money. So I kept saying like, okay, we got another spot open. Um, wow. And I moved just in time because toward the end of that first year, uh, three of the children in our program that we had been sending to school were in a really terrible accident where mm. their house collapsed and they were living with their grandmother who was pretty sick. And um, when the house collapsed, the oldest was pretty hurt and couldn't walk for a little bit. So I offered for the three girls to come and stay with me while they recovered from the accident with the thought that they would go right back to their grandmother. And while they were staying with me, their grandmother actually passed away. Mm. Um, So we looked for family members and didn't find anybody who could take the girls. And so I began the process of fostering them. Um, originally just short-term fostering, which turned into long-term fostering. (laughs) Now they're adopted. Um, But (laughs) that really cemented, I feel like God was already working in my heart, just saying, you know, this is going to be your life's work. This isn't just a year-long thing. But then then all of a sudden I was a mom. And so it was definitely a lifelong thing. And um, (laughs) I'm still here and it's 10 years later. So I don't think I'm going anywhere. No kidding. And, and three turned into, was it 13? 13, that's right. So over the course of the next several years, um, Amazima continued to grow and grew to the place where now we sponsor almost 700 children. And Unbelievable. Our own secondary school. Yeah, so, I mean, amazing. Um, we've been able to come alongside so, so many families and, and support them in this way. And we love to see the family just really empowered to be uh, to be the vehicle that the gospel, you know, goes forth through. And um but our girls are six sibling sets that for various reasons weren't able to be placed with biological family members. And so um, kind of all started out the same way. You know, I would say like, okay, well, you can just stay here for a little bit while we figure this out, you know. And then as I had more kids, the girls would all be like, no, mom, no, let them stay. Come on, mom. We have room. We have space. We can do it. And, you know, then you're not going to say no to that. Correct. So we now have we have 13 adopted girls they're all girls and then we have one my husband and i have one little baby boy 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Now, now, how old were you when you first became the uh, a kind of the foster mom or adopted mom to the first three? I started started fostering them when I was twenty. Okay, per, ripe old age of twenty. <laughs> ripe old age of twenty, and then I had all thirteen of them by the time I was twenty three. <laughs> now now I, i'm assuming because oh your goodness. family's awesome i'm assuming though there there was they, they were a bit concerned somewhere along the way of <laughs> oh, okay absolutely. it was three weeks it turned into a year now it's you're a mother and you were a single mom for most of that time right your, your marriage is relatively recent so i've been married for three years but i've had most of the girls for nine <laughs> right right so what was there what 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 were they thinking? What were they saying? I mean, they you? had to just think that I had gone crazy, right? I mean, like right? <laughs> at 20, I'm trying to explain it to them and think like, come on, guys, why can't you be more supportive? This makes so much sense. But now as a mother of children that are turning into young adults rapidly, I'm thinking like, oh, they must have just thought I had lost it. Like, <laughs> right. right, right. You know, and it is, I mean, it's just a great example of God's blessing and his favor, because without it, like something of this something like this does not work, <laughs> you right. know, like this could go really badly. Oh my goodness. No right. kidding. Yeah. It, uh, but they, I mean, I feel like God really did a work in their hearts. So at first they were really, I mean, they were sad, obviously their yeah. daughter was moving to the other side of the world instead of like going down the street to go to college, you know, that's sad yeah. for any parent. And, um, they wanted good things for me, you know, they, they had, they had raised me well and they wanted me to go on and have a happy and successful life. And it, it didn't really look like I was choosing that path when I decided, you know, not to come back and go to college and right. decided to start taking in these children that I honestly could barely afford. Um, it doesn't yeah. look like you're setting yourself up for success when you do that. And so, um, yeah, I, th I think they just loved me so much that they wanted all the good in the world for me and they didn't see me choosing it. But I remember clearly, um, I was doing a fundraiser. I had visited the States and was trying to raise money for Amazima. And so I was speaking at this fundraiser and my dad, who I think you've met, Mike, yeah. um, he said he stood in the back of the fundraiser with his arms crossed the whole time. <laughs> and he was standing oh. with of African-American women from my church that were just, you know, over the top, so excited about this ministry, so led by the spirit, so excited by how the spirit was moving. And they were talking to my dad, you know, my dad's just standing there looking so overwhelmed. Um, and he told me later that when we got home that night, that while I was speaking, he had felt the Lord kind of say to him, you know, don't stand in my way on this one. Ooh. Um, Oh, and I still like, I get a little teary, <laughs> you know, just, just saying that because, um, yeah. my dad, man, he, he is amazing and he raised me to be a person of faith, but I don't think I had ever heard him say the, <laughs> the Lord spoke this to me or, yeah. or something that right. felt that quite that intimately connected mm. with the Lord. So to hear him say that, you know, he honestly didn't tell me that until like several years after that event, oh. Oh. Yeah. but we came home that night and he just, something had shifted. He was like, all right, well, when you headed back, kiddo. And I was like, okay. <laughs> anyway, they, they have been, you know, God's had to do a lot of work in, in all of our hearts, but they have been unbelievably supportive. And then, you know, you throw grandkids in the picture. And oh, yeah. 
That's what I'm talking They're about. They're over here all the time, but it's it's to see their grandkids. Not me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny how that works. Um, so so kisses from Katie kind of ends with you being the mom of thirteen little ones, and and us all going, oh my goodness, this this young lady is either blessed by Jesus beyond belief or crazy, or maybe a bit of both. Right. <laughs> and. Um, and so Daring to Hope is your latest book, and it kind of picks up several years down the road. And and one of the things, Katie, I told you this offline, but um, one of the things, it's on page four that you write, uh, and that kind of is a segue into, you know, how hard this has been. I mean, it, it, it's sort of this incredibly beautiful story, um, but there's the whole bunch of heartache coming. <laughs> and... Um, and so you write, 10 years ago, I moved from across the ocean, from Tennessee to Uganda, full of something I thought was hope, but in reality was more like naive optimism. Um, if you had asked me then how the Lord might have uh, deepened my relationship with him, I would have had all kinds of answers. At the wise old age of 19, I thought I knew some things. I was going to give my life away for Jesus. I was going to change lives by teaching people. I was going to be the answer, which, oh my goodness. Um, uh, and then you you begin a, a paragraph. I don't. I did not know the beauty that would find me in a life poured out for Him. And then the next paragraph begins. I did not know the pain that awaited me on the other side of the ocean, on the other side of humility. Um, how so? How did that next chapter uh, begin? Um, you were just swimming along. The ministry was blowing up. Um, you had 13 sweet girls. What was the, what was the catalyst that began the, the kind of season of heartache that you reference? Yeah, I think it was, you know, it was kind of a gradual couple years long season, but like you said, you know, ministry is growing, family is growing. The Lord is like pouring out his provision, you know, we're bringing in donations and we're able to expand our programs and everything's going really great. And then um, the first thing that happened that really shook me was one of my foster daughters who I had intended to adopt named Jane. Um, She'd been with us since she was about a year old and she was about to turn four. So she'd been with us about three years. She had been abandoned in this old house that was down the road from mine and a government social worker had called me to place her with me. And we had, you know, we had followed all the things that are in the law. We had advertised on the radio and we had advertised in the newspaper and nobody had come forward and we couldn't find any biological family members that were willing or able to care for her. And so I had begun the adoption process with her, just like I had with my other girls. And we had fostered a lot of babies by that point. I mean, we, we have fostered all kinds of kids over the years and often with the hopes of sending them back to their family. You know, we have that right. in our mind from, from the beginning, you know, that these, these kids are going to get healthy and strong in our home and, and then they're going to go to their home. And, and with Jane, you know, I hadn't felt that way because that had never really been an option. And so her biological mm. mother showed up. Uh, about three out of years nowhere. into having her, out of nowhere, yeah, she had been out of the country working, and she had come back in her into the country, um, and she had she had tracked us down and found. I mean, I'm not that hard to find. You can ask anybody on any street corner, like, hey, do you know that white lady with all the kids? And they'll, right. they'll help you right. find my right. house. Um, <laughs> so she had come and and she had tracked us down, and she just said that she wanted to parent Jane. She wanted her back, and. Mm. Um, wow. 
yeah, the law was not in my favor. And you'd fallen in love. Your family had fallen in love with her. I mean, she was she was a member of our family, just like everybody else. We had never had right. any indication that she wasn't going to be. And so um, I think that was maybe the first real experience I had with, with praying and believing, praying and believing for something, and then just like not getting it and not getting it and not getting right. it. And right. so... Um, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, you know, that something would happen and God would make a way and she would still be a part of our family. And I just, I really felt God showing me that that, you know, that wasn't going to be what happened this time and that I was called to continue to love her and continue to love even her biological mother and try to support them as their new family. Um, mm. Even as I kind of grieved a loss with my family. And, and it did, it did feel like losing a child in a lot of ways. And to my daughters, it felt like losing a sister. And, you know, not only was I in unimaginable pain, but there's unimaginable pain in trying to shepherd your children through that magnitude of loss. You know, it's almost worse to watch your children experience loss totally. of, of that magnitude. Um, but I also felt, I mean, I just felt like throughout the whole process that God was like so near to us and so mm. present. And I felt that his desire was to really show me parts of himself that I hadn't known yet and to show me who he was, you know, when I wasn't getting what I wanted and how God could still be my provider when he wasn't providing the thing that I thought I needed and how God could still be good when like, the story wasn't looking very good. Um, and, and simultaneously with that, not too long after that happened was when Kisses from Katie released. And as right. you know, it was a pretty big hit. Yep. More more so than I would have imagined. You know, some publisher <laughs> approached me and said like, hey, have you ever thought about writing a book about your life? And I said like, oh, sure. I like writing things. Uh, maybe a couple <laughs> people will read it. You know, and then yeah. all of a sudden all these people read it and it's kind of a strange thing to be in this you know the christian fame thing is is a little weird right because oh preach it preach it you, you don't you don't want it that's not why you did any of the things you you didn't do it to become famous and then you've got all these people saying like wow you're amazing i i could never do what you do this is so awesome and you're thinking like oh shoot that wasn't really yeah. the point yeah. and that's not what I want you to think and oh please stop <laughs> um, yeah. so I, I think you know at, around that same time I felt like I was being put on this pedestal of, of kind of minor celebrity by other believers and that was really uncomfortable for me but also I just felt like oh my goodness I'm expected to be this amazing, wonderful, perfect, courageous, you know, <laughs> ministry leader and mother of all these people. And like, people don't know that I'm sitting at home alone in the evening, crying and screaming at God because he won't give me my daughter back or because, you know, I don't understand the trauma in my kids past and I don't know how to help them. And I don't know, you know, there are all these situations that I'm facing all the time that I, I can't fix, you know, and I feel like yeah. you feel like you're living a double life in some ways of like you're being so glorified by the world. And then then inwardly, you're just 
you know you don't deserve it, right? Like, you right. know, like, I'm, I'm a fraud. I'm totally not the amazing person <laughs> that all these people think that I am. And, and so I feel like for the next couple of years, God brought a lot of really difficult things into our life. You know, we have a lot of people come and stay with us that were terminally ill and yeah. ended up dying while they were with us. We had um, a lot of foster children, we had a lot of, you know, people recovering from addiction, just all different people in and around our home. And I almost felt like I couldn't share some of their stories because if I were to be real and say, hey, you know, I'm struggling or, hey, this isn't going the way I wanted to. I think I had a fear that that would minimize who God was. You know, I think I felt like my my story points to God so much because it's been so successful, right? Ministry's been successful and our family's right. huge and awesome. And so like I can write about these things and glorify God because they're like, you know, in some strange way, they're like success stories. Then I felt like I had this whole string of like not success stories, you know, right. okay, we're caring this lady and she's going to live, she's going to get healthy and she's going to go home and parent her five kids and oh, oh, she died. Oh no. Like, do you almost feel like if you tell that story, you know, and then I prayed and believed for her healing and we all laid hands on her and then she died anyway, you know, you feel like maybe... <laughs> Maybe you would take away from God's credibility or something. And so yeah. I felt like God just kind of pulled me into this really beautiful, beautiful in hindsight. I'm not sure I always thought it was beautiful. In the midst of it. <laughs> you know, but just this really beautiful season where I was kind of hidden away in him. And I felt like, wow, like nobody else can understand this. And it's yeah. true. Like nobody understands what it's like to be a single mom of 13 people and have like a dying woman living in your guest bedroom. That's not most people's like normal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and God had blessed me with some really amazing friends here, but you know, at the end of the day, it was eight 30 and all the kids went to bed and it was just me and, you know, just me and Jesus and whoever was really sick <laughs> in the guest room. And yeah. I, I feel like he just gave me this opportunity uh, to cry out for him and long for him and depend on him in a way that, you know, a way that I never had when things were going well and in a way that I never would have experienced had we not been in a season of hardship. And it took me a lot of years. I mean, the hard season probably lasted a couple of years and then we've been in a really like nice, happy, peaceful season <laughs> for the last several years as well. You know, God brought me a husband, even when I had like long kind of laid aside that dream that anybody would be you know, honestly like crazy enough to marry me <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and our entire family, you know, and he, he brought just another great season of blessing. But um, yeah, I think only recently did I, I begin to process just all of the really beautiful things that he had taught me in a season of darkness and in a season of pain and all the things that he had shown me about, you know, what it means to continue to press into him and continue to put our faith and our hope in him when we're not getting what we asked for and when we're not seeing a positive outcome. Because it's not that hard to place your hope in God when things are going the way you want them to go. That's right. And, and, it's, and it's easy to say like, yes, God is good and God is awesome. And look at all that God is doing for me. And then you know, the flip side of that is, can we still say that 
um, when things aren't going the way that we want them to go and when our friends are dying and when our children are struggling and when people are hurting, you know, can we still say God is good and he is worthy of my praise. He's worthy of my adoration. And like, there is no one I can put my hope in other than him. You know, Katie, I was, um, just as you were, as you were speaking, I I was thinking, you know, that, um, that the story and daring to hope of this journey actually, I think, gives God more credibility than the kisses from Katie's story. Just in in my – because for me, yeah, I, I'm with you. God and his presence, you know, sometimes it's so thick and you're like, yes, I feel it and things are going great. But the, the, the part that I find, you know, all of us universally struggling with is – um, feeling his presence, sensing his blessing and provision over our lives when it's just going really cruddy. And, um, so I get that. I get, I get why you'd feel like a fraud and why you would, you know, be hesitant. But, uh, but, you know, at the other, on the other hand, I'm like, but, but those are the stories that actually resonate more with me mm-hmm. than the successful stories. You know, they, like I, I give God more credibility hearing that in those really dark places, he's sitting right there, you know, as you're putting up post-it notes around your counter, um, you know, he's, he's right there. Um, so, so I kind of, as you were talking, I was like, yeah, I, I see that, but I almost think because I enjoyed, and maybe that's just stage of life where I'm at, but I enjoyed, um, daring to hope more. Uh, it, it just you know, both are incredible, but 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 just because there was that sense of okay, good, I'm glad that there's someone else in the pit, and and to to have have solid ground even then, is a message I more desperately need than hey, look at what big bold courageous faith looks like. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Well, so, thank you for saying that. I feel like. I really, I wanted that so much in this book. And and honestly, I enjoyed writing this book a whole lot more because it was just, it was so real and it was so from my heart. And I feel like I did a lot of learning, even as I was writing it, I felt like God was, you know, revealing more and more to me about different things that he's taught me over the years. But I wanted so badly for it to be relatable because I think, um, it's not a very relatable thing to be a missionary in Uganda with a huge family and whatever, you know, people kind of go like, Oh wow. I could, you know, I could never do that or, you know, whatever people say, but I think it's, it's very relatable to say like, and then I prayed and prayed to God and And nothing happened or, um, you know, and then, you know, it's, it's, I think there's suffering just abounds everywhere in the world can be, a dark place. And so I, I wanted it to be something that people could relate to and be encouraged that like, yeah, whatever their difficulty was, like whatever their dark circumstance was like, God would be present in that as well. How does the, how does the attention feel this second time around from the book? Do you, do you, are you more comfortable and settled in kind of how you handle it? Do you still feel like you're being put on a pedestal or because the book's different enough that you feel like people kind of have a glimpse of who you really are? That's a great question. I don't think I've been, I haven't been asked that yet. Um, it's, it's definitely easier this time around, I think, cause I've kind of gotten over like 
the awkwardness of it. And you come, you come <laughs> to a place of realizing like you can only be responsible for the things that you said. And then like some people will hear what you said and some people will hear a different thing that they yeah. want to think that you said. And, and that used to really bother me, but um, I feel like yeah. God has given me a lot of grace for people as well. You know, people are so well-meaning and so gracious. And even this time, and I was in the States for a little while to promote the new book and I don't know. I just, I felt really loved and really cheered on by people. And it was less of a feeling of, Oh, you've put me on this pedestal and more of a feeling like, wow, like, yeah, we're all in this together. You know, we're all seeking God in our hard stuff and our hard stuff might be different and our life circumstance might be different, but like, we're all in this together just to see him. Yep. Katie, how do people uh, get involved uh, with your ministry? Yeah. Uh, the best way probably to get involved is on our website, which is amazima.org. And that's A-M-A-Z-I-M-A.org. And there's a lot of opportunity on there for how to become a prayer partner, how to become a financial partner. We even are actually at the moment looking for some teachers. I think I mentioned earlier nice. that this is our first year. We opened a high school right. this year, wow. and we're super excited about it. We really felt like, you know, in order to get a good secondary education, we're having to send a lot of our kids to boarding schools that are a couple hours away from here. And boarding school is a pretty common way to get secondary education here. But Amazima is a ministry that really wants to be focused on discipling whole families and empowering whole families. And we just felt like um, we were kind of losing our teenage kids at this really crucial point of discipleship. And um that's a time when sense. we want them here and close to us. So that's why a lot of people ask, like, well, why did you start with a high school and not an elementary school? But we started with a high school because our elementary s- students are able to go to local schools that we um, partner with really well. And we can have um, our mentors who are, there are social workers on our staff, but we call them mentors because we want them to be disciplers even more so than we want them to be social workers. They're able to connect with the elementary students pretty easily during their lunch breaks at school, but our secondary children were being sent farther away. And so we've opened this high school. We're super excited about it. We have 72 students this year Um, and the school year here runs January to November. So it's about to be the very end next week is the last week of our first year. And then we'll add a whole nother class of 72 next year and grow it up like that. But part of our model is that um, we pair one Western teacher with one Ugandan teacher. And the idea would be that the Westerner has the opportunity to really impart some new educational skills and, mm-hmm. and show the Ugandan teacher just some some different ways of teaching. We're really trying to use the school to instill critical thinking and um, just a broader worldview. But then, of course, the Ugandan teacher needs to teach the Western teacher all about the culture and all about <laughs> how to teach, you know, within the context and how to honor these people and how to love them well. And so, um, yeah, but with your question of how to get involved, we are looking for a couple teachers. So somebody might even make their way over to the website and find a job. I love that. All right. Wow. Um, Katie, anything you want to ask or add, Andy, before we let Katie go? Uh, yeah, I had one question. Can you give us just a bit of a, a snapshot of um, what do the opportunities look like with being able to help support what's happening in the schools? Meaning, 
is there is there a bit of an education epidemic where a lot of kids can't go to school because of like what you said that it's too expensive for them to go and if they don't end up going to school is the long-term journey for them finding a job finding a career pretty bleak because of that lack of early education and then what's kind of you know what does the educational process look like for them getting into elementary high school and, and their potential success rate after kind of doing all of that in Uganda yeah, that's a great question. You know, Uganda is in a really unique position because 50% of the population here is under the age of 15. So mm. you're really looking at just like a nation of children. There wow. are kids everywhere. And because school is expensive and honestly unaffordable for many people, um, you know, without an education, it's very, very difficult to get a job. Honestly, it's difficult to get a job with a good education. So without an education, hmm. you, you pretty much don't have a shot. And so you could farm. You know, there's a lot of agriculture that goes on here. Okay. Um, but as a farmer, you know, you would probably be able to raise enough crops for your family's food. But in turn, you wouldn't be able to pay for your own children to go to school one day. And so that kind of just like continues in this cycle of poverty. And so we're, we're trying, of course, to break that cycle by sending these kids through school in hopes that they will be leaders in their communities, that they will grow up and be like top runners for these job opportunities. But also, um, rote memorization is huge in the school system here. Everything is just memorized and geared toward passing this test at the end of your education. And so part of what we're doing at the high school is really trying to integrate critical thinking and problem-solving skills into education. So we use the Ugandan curriculum as put forward by the Ugandan government, but we're always trying to explore how to teach it differently and more creatively so that these kids can get a real grasp of what it means to be a problem solver and, you know, really what it means to be a world changer and to think outside the box. And hmm. I mean, obviously our core focus in that is discipleship. Um, all the teachers and all the staff up at the school are just unbelievable people who like desire to pour Jesus into these kids all day, every day. And so it's been really amazing to see even just the life transformation in some of these freshmen over the last year. And I'm super yeah. excited to watch it continue. Wow, that's neat. That's neat. I, and then I, I had one more question. If you, if you could just tell us just a little bit about, um, about your girls, like what's kind of, what's just their broad interests? I mean, are there, are some of them really artistic? Are some of them really athletic? Are some of them really um, book smart and kind of logically intuitive? I mean, t just tell us a little bit about them. Oh my goodness, that would be hard. Um, they're all, they're all so you know they're all so different. I feel like the answer to every one of those things you said is yes. You know, there's Helen who is this amazing artist, but also has the ability to like figure out anything. I mean, put any game, any Lego set with instructions, any puzzle in front of her, and she will figure it out in a minute. Or there is Sue, who is so very athletic that she's joined the only boys rugby team here in Jinja because there's like no girls sports, you know? So she plays rugby every Saturday morning with like a group of teenage boys. Um, yeah, I mean, they're all, they're all so different as you would expect, but yeah, yeah. they're amazing. They're amazing young women. That's beautiful. That's great. Katie, it is so great to hear your voice again. We are, we are 
cheering you on. I'm glad you feel that from from folks that are following along. Um, we will uh, we'll be glad to to get this show out there and and uh, hopefully draw more attention to what God's doing in the ministry and. Uh, and the book is called Daring to Hope, and we we encourage people to pick it up. It's amazing. So thanks for your time, Katie. Anything, uh, any last words for us? As a no, mom of I, 13 kids. <laughs> I mean, um, last words to anybody would just be like, keep pressing into Jesus. He is, he is so faithful. And if you can't see it yet, you will. He is so faithful and he is so near. I love it, man. Amen. Thank you, Katie. Have a great, have a great rest of your night. Hope you get some Thank sleep. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> oh, Thanks, Andy. You're welcome. All right. See you, Katie. Okay. Bye. 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 So that's Katie, guys. Holy cow! You know, it, it's I, 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 <laughs> I, I lack kind of words um, to because I don't want to, you know, do the pedestal thing, right? Um, but there's this there's this little Mother Teresa vibe with her, you know. It's like just this, like I, I, her heart's just so freaking awesome. Um, and and you talk about you know it's one thing to uh, be conscious of what's going on around the world. Uh, this is a whole new level. Oh and yeah. So you know this is this is just somebody who said yes to everything along the way. Right. And how many countless generations. And the trajectories of their lives will will be shaped, you know, by this. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just, she just is a remarkable, remarkable person. So, right. well, and that, and that I was so, oh, no, go ahead. Well, and I was going to say too, it's fascinating, you know, it, like she said, that strange quirkiness of, okay, great. Now I've got a, you know, a New York Times bestseller and everyone knows me and they, they hear what I'm doing and like, oh, I could never do that. And that's kind of the response, but it's funny. It's like. She was a 19-year-old girl who just decided to to just go and do it. It's not like right. there was some outrageous right. qualification that took place. The right. better response is just saying like, "Oh, I didn't do that. I didn't do that." Not that I couldn't. It was just simply realizing I did not do yeah. that and therefore I do not have that life. And yeah. you know, her you know, granted the slight amount of willingness and open-heartedness that she had over the matter made it possible, I think, for God Absolutely. to do something. And I think, you know, does everyone potentially have that ability? Absolutely. You know, but it's just at the end of the day, some do and some some do it and some do not. And, um, you know, I mean, all I'm saying is to encourage anyone who hears that story to be like, you know, I think that it's we don't do a good enough job of letting God surprise us by putting us into opportunities in which he could do that. Rather, right. we're too busy deciding Ooh, well what life is going to well look like. said. <laughs> well, thank you. So, yeah. yeah. That was my no, thought. I really like that. I really like that. There is that. There is a sense that, and, and this, you know, wars against my preferences, but there's a sense in which um, that you see God do his best stuff either at the end of your rope or in circumstances where you have no other fallback. Right. right. And so, you know, she was willing to, to go in over her head time and time again. So it's just a, just a really amazing story. She's super authentic and I was excited to be able to get her, get her on the show. And, and the message, of course, it, like the book gets into, um, the specific circumstances and how God kind of meets her, um, I referenced these post-it notes. She would just, she would be looking out 
kind of her back window and she would um, she'd be writing post-it notes of just little things that she was thankful for because she was in such a dark place and pretty soon her whole wall was just filled mm -hmm. with you know post-it notes from tiny things to big things to whatever and I thought that was really kind of a really cool picture uh, of someone just kind of hanging on yeah. um, uh, to hope so so anyway we we obviously recommend it and um, and check out her ministry too I think that's a worthy definitely a worthy investment in a, in a world where there are lots of ministry kind of options to support. And you wonder, do these things really happen? Do they really help? What's the matter, Andy? Oh, no, keep going. I, I just want to make sure we, we, we quoted the ministry right or the website right. So I wasn't sure if she gave the direct link or not. I didn't. She did. She did. She okay. Did. I wasn't sure yeah. if I missed that. Okay. Yep. So, so check that out. Anyway, my brothers and sisters, we're so honored to be a part of your life. We love you in a very collective general sense. <laughs> in a very corporate way not too intimately yes. or personal but corporately we're... well yeah yeah you're you're just this <laughs> collective friendly face of the internet where where the internet is such an unfriendly place everywhere else we just have this little cozy nook of the vox podcast community it's amazing so may the lord so bless true. you and keep you may the lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you may the lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace until next time my brothers and sisters Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox Podcast. And now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash voxpodcast.